This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. In this episode of Crisis Talks, on the 20th anniversary of our deployment to East Timor, I sat down with Major General Chris Field. 20 years ago, he was the Operations Officer of the 2nd Battalion, and now he's the Forces Commander of Australian Army. We relive the days of our first deployment since Vietnam. We discuss some of his leadership experiences in the US, Iraq, and at home during the recovery from Cyclone Debbie in 2017 and posted Queensland floods in 2011. Major General Field is an erudite professional, meticulous in his own preparation, yet a very humble and empathetic leader who always takes pride in team success above personal achievement. Uh, Righto, ladies and gentlemen, today uh, is the 20th anniversary for our deployment to East Timor as part of Interfed. Uh, and at that time, one of the one of the officers, or the, the one of the officers that I uh, had the privilege of serving under at that time, who was our operations officer at the time, was Major Chris Field. He is now Major General Chris Field, uh, Forces Commander for the Australian uh, Australian Forces Command here in Australia. Uh, Major General Chris Field, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to be speaking to you today, and welcome to Crisis Talks. Thank you, thank you, Grant. Great to be with you today. So take us back 20 years. You were our operations officer. We jumped off the plane. We'd been in country now for a number of hours. What sort of work goes on behind the scenes in preparing for a deployment like that? Well, um, in in the context of the Australian Defence Force, uh, we we were in what was what has been described by the late Professor Geoffrey Gray as the third generation of the Australian Army. So the first generation is the First World War, where we built up a professional force and then that force ended after the First World War and then we went into a period of lull <clears throat> through the 20s and 30s and then built up another professional force in the Second World War, being the second generation. And then following the Second World War, the, the leaders of the army decided that there should be a professional force and that professional force was employed extensively in North Asia, Korea, and then throughout Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Malaya, Borneo, and, and those sort of places. Uh, and then when we left Vietnam in 1972, the candle of that professional army was held by people like David Morrison, Mick Slater, who, who were the leaders of that organisation, Peter Lay, who held the professional standards for the organisation, which led us to the fourth generation of the army, 1999 in um, East Timor. So it was really a step change for the Australian Defence Force as an organisation. We were coming out of the third phase into the fourth phase and then East Timor then led into the wars of the 21st century, particularly Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East. Uh, so we were an organisation that had been doing things in a similar way for a long time. We'd, always, we'd all, always had an expeditionary thought in our process, but that was um, not the, the Australian policy. The Australian policy was, def policy was defence of Australia. So we would, we would defend in Australia be something that we could do but it wasn't the way we were structured so suddenly when the Australian government said we need to deploy a brigade plus 
to East Timor, then that that takes a bit of a bit of change and a bit of thinking. Um, 1999 started off a fairly normal year. General Slater came in as Lieutenant Colonel Slater came in as the CO, mm-hmm. and. If you remember, we did an exercise up in the Atherton Tablelands, which somehow, I don't know how General Slater did it, but it was a rehearsal for East Timor. We flew armed, yep, we, we, we flew armed vehicles up to Cairns. I think that was your company. Yes. And then we, we, we used a lot of helicopters on the Atherton Tablelands. General Slater got us to go into um, jungle areas, the close country areas. We worked in urban environments. We worked out of Ford operating bases. We essentially rehearsed what would be required to do in East Timor. And I, to this day, I don't know how Mick Slater did that. But um, that was a great preparation for us. The other, the other friction for us was um, we were in, in the three brigade construct. It's similar today. There was, there was a changeover of readiness. In those days, it was between battalions within the same brigade. And there was the first battalion who were the ready battalion and the second battalion was going to be ready about today. And um, General Brigadier at midnight on the 20th of September or after that, whenever the, whenever the, the execute order is issued, they will go. Um, now, now I understand a bit about how orders are written and approved and everything. I don't actually know how that worked because um, it's not as if that order was written at midnight on the 20th. But anyway, we were the ones who went. The significant thing was that we thought, I definitely thought, that the 2nd Battalion would always be the bridesmaid. That There's a member of the 2nd Battalion, I, I certainly considered, I don't think General Slater did, but I certainly considered that uh, we might be the bridesmaid here, as we had been. The 1st Battalion were the first infantry unit into Vietnam. They were... The the only unit that went to Somalia, led by the then Lieutenant Colonel David Hurley, now our Governor-General. And so I was a little bit surprised that we actually um, were the the people to go. But um, nonetheless, we we were ready to go. And the execution of that operation, it just, for, for me, demonstrated time and rehearsal is never wasted. And we had rehearsed well with General Slater. We knew how to work helicopters. We knew how to move people and move equipment. And we knew what to do once we got on the ground. Um, and certainly the battalion um, just surged from there and um, never took a backward step. Yeah, it was a, a pretty uh, pretty poignant memory for, for me rolling in that first time and, and for us all working in there together and uh, certainly formed a brotherhood between us all. Do you have still fond memories, memories given your other experiences over the years of that particular deployment or that particular time? Yeah, so look, I, I know that um, for, for General Slater, it was the greatest thing he ever did. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I, I think the privilege to, to go on uh, operations with an infantry battalion is, um, it doesn't come along very often. And so uh, Mick Slater was, um, he's told me there was his, his great privilege to, to do that. And, and I think um, to be around leaders such as Dick Parker, Bob Hamilton, Jim Bryant, um, was was also fantastic. The battalion was very very workmanlike in what they did, and they they did a um, very professional job. And um, I, I think in many cases, I'm actually going to Townsville tomorrow night to talk to talk to them to talk to the team. But um, 
yeah. that they in many in many cases I think they did the job so well that they um, they flew under everyone's radar and and um, probably um, you know I, I think it's great testament to to, to their professionalism that um, that they really went went about their job did did what they needed to do and um, and uh, left left that country in a better place. You said that uh, we went under the radar. I think that was certainly a, a personal trait from Mick Slater. He didn't like that limelight. He uh, he certainly he certainly uh, avoided that all, all equally, though he handled it very well later on in the interview with uh, with Jessica Rowe and the like. Um, you yourself, though, were were a bit in that sort of similar sort of mould, though, weren't you? As in you, you know, you were very you know very professional, very workmanlike. Um, didn't seek that sort of limelight or otherwise there. Uh, how would you define yourself as a as a leader? Um, I I, th I think I've I've definitely changed over time, and um, yes, yeah, so, so I, I certainly um, I, I think I'm as as I've got older and made mistakes and, and learned from those mistakes, I certainly um, got better. But I think it's also as as a leader, it's it's a continual journey, a, a continual path of journey, and. Um, and learning and and really trying things and not everything works and 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 so I think it has been being able to work alongside people like Mick Slater means you get to learn and uh, you get to see what he what he does and clearly you can't um, completely emulate the person's process but you can certainly take take some good things from them and so what are those sort of things that you've learned along the way with your experience? You know, expanding out to the US and and the what you've done overseas and other operations. What's some of the the key lessons that you've learned along the way in leadership? So, so I think um, there's four key areas that I've as I've as I've um, grown older that I've realised are important. I think when you join the army, it's all about the hierarchy. It's about who do you work for and 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 what what is the process and what's the chain what we call chain of command. The more I've served, the more I seek a flat organisation. And I think that communications do allow that. Um, email, social media, smartphones, even even um, Google, where, where you can gain whatever information you need. Information is no longer held by the oldest person in the room. It, it, is, it is really democratic. So I think that allows us to, to communicate in a flat structure. Um, and our, our Australian society, even in the 30 years that I've been in the army, Australian society has become less and less formal. So the expectation that you can sit and um, give your advice from, from, from on high is, is even less so than it was when I first joined. And quite frankly, millennials won't, won't put up with hierarchy in, in terms of they do like the connection with, with all people. They do respect high emotional intelligence. They they do respect to, to to being able to be informed. They do respect having their opinion heard. And I think that I have seen that change and I've also changed. Um, and the other thing about the flatness of our communication is the military is much more visual in society, much more in, in, in Australian society consciousness than it was in the 80s or the 90s when we'd been in peace for so long in that third generation. But now I don't think there are any Australian families who haven't been touched in some way by someone who, who's gone off to one of the wars of the 21st century, um, whether it's an immediate relative or a friend of theirs. 
It's interesting. We were doing some numbers on that, a friend of mine and I, and, and it's about 2.9% of the of people in Australia now or, or ha- are currently serving or have served in the Defence Force over, over the journey. So so you're right, it's a really important comment that um, people generally will know someone is involved, live with someone or have been a you know family member of someone involved or or is currently serving or has served themselves. So you said that we were we've changed in our way. Have you seen I mean if I go to the other extreme, I look at the American uh, defense forces and and the the profile probably more so of the generals in America. Uh, do you have to adopt a different profile now that you're a major general within our defense forces than than what the previous generals had? Um, I mean, there's 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 a couple of things to your comment about two point nine percent of Australians. I think in the US it's one percent of the population, and and they are a bit concerned about. That, very, that narrowing of the professional military and, and even in fact, people I've served with, their kids are also in the military. So they might, they might have kid, children who have gone to West Point or Annapolis or, or um, Colorado for the Air Force and they tend to, they tend to have this, this uh, military strata within their organisation which they, they realise is not healthy. So I'm pleased that we are three times, three times that. Um, in terms of... Um, Profile and, and accessibility. I I definitely think that um, the consciousness of the Australian population that we even had generals was was raised. I think when General Cosgrove went to Timor in ninety nine, and I, I don't I don't think that um, many many of the Australian population would have even consciously thought that there were people that we called generals who who worked in the army. But I think General Cosgrove did change that. He dealt with the media very effectively and in terms of what we would now call information operations and it is part of our spectrum of capabilities he, he did a great job and, and and he was probably worth a couple of infantry battalions himself just in his ability to engage people build the right relationships build coalition send the message to people who might do us harm um, send, send messages to the local population so there definitely is a responsibility for, for leaders, and I, I don't think it's just in the military, to be able to engage and to, to be able to have the right messaging. And I think this current Chief of Army, General Rick Bird, does a very good job of making sure we've got the right messaging and that we're all, we're all aligned with the way, the way we speak. Is that coordinated? Is that a really you know, decisive or deliberate effort on, on Army's behalf now or on, on your collective behalves now to, to really up the ante on that engagement? Yeah, uh, Gen- General Burr, he's released um, some key some key documents. They're all unclassified and on, on the internet, but um, one is Army in Motion, which, which his view is that the Army is ever-changing and it's like I was talking about the different generations of the, 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 our organisation, that we are modernising, changing, adapting to the, to the environment, adapting to the character of war. Um, and he sees that as a foundation document that he would, he would think that would last several chiefs of army beyond him. He also has a, a, a document called Good Soldiering, which is about our ethics, our character, our values of who we are as, as soldiers and military professionals. And then he has a more contemporary document called Accelerated Warfare, <clears throat> which talks about the converging of demographics, literal literal pressure, urban environments, communications, 
population, resources, climate change, all those things converging and accelerating and us having to adapt to that acceleration. Now that, as, as war, the, the, the character of war changes, that will change, but certainly army in motion and good soldiering are the foundation blocks that um, General Burr set up and I think they'll last for some time to come. So those ethics and values, which is one of those foundations, what, what does that really prescribe or, or outline? So um, in, 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 terms of, in terms of good, good soldiering, it is um, how, how we'll behave in terms of our army values, courage, initiative, respect and teamwork. Um, he, he talks about uh, the people are the centre of, of, of what we do the professionalism of our organisation, um, the performance, the performance of our of our people, and and, and making sure that um, his view is the centre of gravity of the army uh, are our ethics and, and our performance. If we if we are a credible force, then we're able to do our job, um, and 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 part of that is mutual trust and shared understanding for people to to make sure that um, when when we go to do a job. That they realise that this is this is an organisation that's trying to do good things, mm-hmm. and um, as General Mattis would say, we're not perfect, but we we um, we do things to the best of our ability, and um, that's what that's what General Burr's uh, uh, aiming aiming for us to do. I mean, when we're doing it to the best of our ability, that means also the application of force and and in in violent circumstances. How can that? You, you find that balance and you know i've lived it we've lived it and and the like but other people out there who are listening have never experienced that sort of dichotomy of sorry, protecting and defending on one hand and uh and attacking or using violent force when it's required so uh, how do those values really come through and be be executed at those points where as a real critical decision needs to be made oh that that is a um that's that's a great question, and so so there's two two aspects of war. There's the character of war, and there's the nature of war. So the character of war is is what what we're talking about with accelerated warfare. This convergence of change, whether demographics, urban environments, um, information, etc. That's a character at the moment. The character of war in the First World War was very different. It was you know the trench warfare and just bringing in aviation into, into the space and it's changed all the way through. But the nature of war, which is a, a very human interaction that's violent and it's a struggle between, a, a struggle of wills against each other, the nature of war doesn't change. So that's the, that's the, that's the bold reality or the bold reality of warfare, that it is, that it is violent. It's a human. It's a human endeavor, and it's a, it's a struggle of wills between between um, people. Uh, so um, that and that responsibility is is um, given to the the defence force to to defence forces of of many nations, and it's a tightly held responsibility. But it's only a responsibility that's been sanctioned by governments for about 350 years. Mm. So once the Treaty of Westphalia brought together nation states in Europe, then before that, violence was was really privately held, and it wasn't it wasn't a 
a, a function of government. It was it was a function of private armies, different different institutions. Even in Roman time, you, your allegiance was to the emperor, not to the nation. Yeah. So after the Treaty of Westphalia, they we decided that we would have nation states, and nation states would have certain responsibilities. So caring for people and medical and schooling, etc., but also the application of violence. And so that's what that's what militaries do, and that's why militaries exist. However, we can do many other things. So the way we, we speak is that we train for high-end warfighting, but we can adapt to any task that we're given. So, um, in fact, General Krulak, a Marine, a former Marine commandant, spoke about the three-block war. And it's from the 90s he spoke about this, but essentially what he would say in three blocks, you could be required as a military professional to... Uh, execute lethal violence, to separate warring factions, and then to give out humanitarian assistance, all within three city blocks. And that's an excellent description of the complexity that our young people face. And it is a great characteristics of uh, 21st century, 20th century and 21st century Western militaries that we have people who can lead and can adapt in those environments to, to provide the effect that government needs. Um, and in a mission command sense, uh, even, even without new orders, because they know intuitively, because their values are right, they know intuitively that this is the right thing to do. You mentioned mission command. You're a great exponent of mission command. I remember working for you as, as a head of recon snipers at the time, working under you as the operations officer in, in, in East Timor. Um, you certainly gave us the the, the commander's intent, the, the the resources, and then the opportunity, then an empowerment to to go on and and lead our troops to achieve that intent. How important is mission command in militaries in in achieving those those warfighting aims? I grant um, mission command is how I build my thinking every day. And I, and I I use seven seven principles. It's U.S. doctrine, but I like um, I like the way they think. Mm-hmm. So the commander's intent is what they is is how it all starts, and that is or leader's intent or, or your boss's intent, where essentially you work very hard as a leader to make sure that people who work for you understand exactly what you want. Now that's actually hard work because generally you are faced with a blank bit of paper, generally. Um, you may, if you're wise, you'll have people to help you, but depends on the time available and the environment, whether, whether you do have much time. And you probably, your first intent will probably be not exactly what you want, but you'll have a go. Um, but the idea is that you, you, you provide as much intent up, uh, up front as possible to accelerate the planning from your people because they don't, then don't have to guess what you're thinking. The second is mission orders. So, so essentially, um, write succinctly and write, write in the active voice so that people know exactly what is expected of them. So um, our, our orders, as you, as you are aware, are, tend to be grouped by, by, by function and by task. <clears throat> but um, most importantly about, about mission orders is how, how do you connect uh, different people together. So if someone is told to go to X and someone is told to go to Y, how are they supporting each other when they are doing that process? And who gets the resources to go where? Who goes first? 
what what is the sequence and then what happens when, when they get there and what is required to be done when they get there. So mission orders are key. A shared understanding, and so that is done, that is done by the flat communications that I spoke about before, but also bringing people together and and um, making sure you work through work through um, issues. When we when we issue orders, we, we have two processes. One is a confirmation brief. That's immediately after orders, which means this is what I hear, and I, I confirm back to you, you've asked me to do these things. And then a day later, it could be a day later, it could be an hour later, come back for a back brief. And the back brief tells the person who gave the orders exactly how you're going to do, how you're going to do what they've asked you to do. And that, that way you create a shared understanding so that people who told you what they what they want you to do understand you you've told them how you're going to do it and then you and you both have an understanding and everyone else has an understanding of how that will be done mutual trust is uh, built up every day that is that is built up in all of our actions that we are reliable that we, we do what we, we're going to say that we are truthful that we're ethical and then people people then believe us and so when you're in stressful situations there's no hesitation that you would trust that person in our case with with their, with your life um, or, or in other in other circumstances with, with highly important matters of business. Um, discipline initiative is is people like you as a young officer being given a task, uh, going going out to do that task, and when the situation on the ground changes, you realise that there's an opportunity, but you're not going outside the boundaries that you've been given, and you use your initiative not to miss an opportunity. Um, and then acceptance of risk, the way we speak about it is who owns the risk. Uh, sometimes people just say it's risky, it's, it's high risk, it's medium risk, et cetera, but who owns that risk and for how long is the risk owned? So it might be to the end of a project or for us the end of a phase or it might be forever um, or it might be until some resource arrives. And then once you understand who owns the risk and for how long the risk is held, do you treat the risk? Do you tolerate the risk? Do you transfer the risk or do you, do you terminate the activity? And then that's six of the seven principles. The seventh one is the most important. You have to be competent. So it doesn't matter. I can trust you. I can trust someone all day. I can have a shared understanding with them. I can give them the best set of orders in the world. world. But if they can't navigate to the right spot, if they can't achieve radio communications or digital communications, if their leadership is toxic, then, then they, are, they won't be competent to do the job. And so Mission Command is really underpinned by, by that seventh principle. You take those principles and apply them in a, const, a construct where there is not that shared trust or, the, or, or built through training that you have with an environment like a reconstruction authority or, or pre, sorry, excuse me, post floods 2011, uh, how did you go about in that circumstance with the, with the floods going off in Brisbane at the time in 2011? How did you, you manage to apply those principles to the context of a completely different grouping of people and organisations that hadn't had that, that mutual trust or equally, in some cases, probably didn't have that same level of competence? Um, um, that's that's also a, a fantastic question, and I think um, the way I approach it is, I own those um, those principles. And by the way, competence has only been inserted by the United States Army in July this year. Previously, competence wasn't in there, but I do like that addition. Um, so I'll take I'll take 
Competence would be, I mean, competence is part of your construct. I mean, you're assessing people on competence every day as part of every training activity or other or other mutual operations you're working together on those. So I suppose it does make sense, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. I think it's a great addition to, to the, the, the principles, but uh, it just wasn't in there. It was implied, you're right. Um, but I do like the fact that it is, um, it is front and centre in the way they think. Um, so, so for, for me, when I go into an organisation, I, I, I own these, these seven principles and I'll be looking for opportunities to apply them and um, basically working, whether it's working in the Reconstruction Authority or working with the local councils in Queensland or going working with the United States, I'm always conscious of being a guest in, in their environments and um, essentially to adapt to to adapt to their ways, but also add value add value where it's possible. So, if I keep those seven principles in front of mind, and I realise there's an opportunity for us to to um, examine examine risk, or to 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 do an activity where we can we can enhance our understanding of how we do things, um, or to to do some activity that that will, will enhance our trust. Then I'll do that, but I but I but I will say that as a guest in those organisations, particularly US and in in um, working in Queensland, I didn't always get it right because I didn't always have a full understanding of um, of the environment and the discipline initiative that I thought I was demonstrating wasn't always appreciated. So it is um, just something I have to I had to um, adapt to and realise. Okay, that didn't work. I need to I need to try some other some other way but um it is i think what i what i use the principles for is is just a guide for me to try and lay lay some sort of uh, pattern over wherever i wherever i am and so i can make sense of particularly going to a new environment in the u.s particularly it's a completely new language new new abbreviations new acronyms uh new culture and then I've got to try somehow to make sense of it so I can become an effective partner. You're always a fastidious preparer. Um, some would say nearly obsessive compulsive, Chris. Is that true or not? My wife would say that. <laughs> how, how hard is it when, you're, when you are you know, that well organised and yourself and, and well prepared yourself, how hard is it stepping into an uncomfortable zone where you have to be, so, or take a backward step in some in some cases. Oh, I think um, it's it's the way it's the way of um, the environment. <clears throat> we, we 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 cannot operate in a, in the military sense without a coalition or or a whole of government or a whole of government effort. And I think these, particularly the the twenty first century conflicts, have have shown us that this is normal. I think we are a much better organisation for it. We are a lot less insular, and a lot of our understanding is um, is greater of other people's capabilities. I think that we, for, for us, the it is um, more a federated approach than 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 a hierarchical approach, and we are much more comfortable that when we go and do an activity across the spectrum of capabilities that we might be required to to uh, play. So human maritime land air cyber information space so across all those spectrums there are probably people that um you might even not you may not even know their name 
but they are providing an effect that is going to help you to, to, to do what you need and you need to, you need to work together. Um, and really, that spectrum of capabilities is, is the modern version of what we would call combined arms activity. So you have, you have systems working together with their own strengths, protecting their, each other's weaknesses. And that is really um, what is required of a, of a modern military to, to deal with these complex, uh, complex environments. I, uh, I do happen to recall uh, a particular red alert where we turned up to your house and uh, um, there was, you were absent. There was one piece of key furniture that's probably in every house around the country and maybe multiples in every house now around every country. But what was that at the time, can you recall, that you didn't have? I, I, we have none now, the television. So uh, look, rolling forward 20 years, nowadays we read, I've read books which said get rid of the TV. For you back in that time, was it, was it just that your preference was towards learning and improving yourself at that point in time? Were, and in that case, in that regard, sorry, were you, was it a deliberate thing not to have a, a television back in, uh, back in the home 20 years ago or, or is it just the nature of the way that you like to prepare yourself anyway generally? Yeah, I, I, th I think it was. Um, it was just a, a, a lifestyle choice. I, 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 as you remember, we weren't home much anyway. Yeah. Uh, but so, um, and and if and I, I knew if I had it on, I'd watch it. So, I would rather I'd rather whatever time I had at home be able be able to reflect, um, read, what whatever. So, and even now, I, I sometimes I'll have it on. I'll have the sound off though. Um, but uh, it is it is good to be able to watch sport, etc. So reflection, though, is an important part of any leadership role, and creating time and space for that. I discussed with Cameron Schwab the other day, who was formerly an AFL CEO for three different clubs. Uh, he said the first thing he would do now, walking into a new organisation, was pull out everyone's calendars and lock it, lock away two to three hours of reflection for each of them straight away. Do you have much of a time to do that now yourself? Um, I, I do like his approach. Um, I, I, I mean, certainly in this job, I do um, work with the staff to make sure that there is time. There is time to reflection. There, there is a, there is a tendency for staff just to fill every bit of white space, um, and it is it is useful to to have that. Even if you just give yourself a lunch hour. If there's a temptation to not give yourself a lunch hour, it doesn't matter what you do. It's just an hour for you to just to catch up. Um, what we're doing <clears throat> in 2020 for, for our organisation is we, you'll be aware we have an exercise hammer, which is a brigade exercise each year. The tendency has been to fill up that, that year with activities that we, that we direct from here in Sydney. What we have done is we've deliberately placed everything in May and August, as many activities as possible to be simultaneously conducted. So there will be people doing amphibious activities, there'll be people in the field, there'll be people doing command post exercises in Townsville, there'll be people in Brisbane, there'll be people flying in from Darwin. And then we're going to have two months what we call white space, so people have the opportunity to rest. It also happens to be school holidays, and for many years we've had exercise Hamill over the school holidays, so we move Hamill off the school holidays. Um, which is a simple a simple activity, but something that has um, a bad impact on our on our workforce if we don't do that. 
um, just to give people that opportunity. And we, and we are doing a 100 day assessment at the moment of Forces Command. And the big theme for us is time with teams to allow our junior leaders, our, our junior non-commissioned officers, our junior officers to have time to build those relationships with teams and get the experience of doing things well and making mistakes so then we can grow them as future leaders. How important is that opportunity to make those mistakes and, and what have you learned from that yourself? Um, mistakes are uh, absolutely absolutely part of, part of learning. They're also uh, something that occurs when you actually use your discipline initiative and, and try and get things done. I recently spoke to a son of a, of a friend of mine who's in the army. He made a little error. And uh, the first thing I said to him was, my number one priority for you is, are you okay? Is, I don't really, you know, whatever happens, are you, are you fine? And um, then I said to him, there by the grace of God go all of us because he's living in a time of social media. And um, it's much more, I think, much more difficult for, for, our, for our young people. So therefore, we need to, we need to make sure that um, we, we, uh, we take that into account when, when, when we're dealing with our people. Um, the other thing that we do, we, we have a reporting system of um, behaviour that's not, not within Army standards or unsafe, unsafe behaviours, which we report every day. But we also have a system where we report exemplary behaviour. So it's where people have, in some cases, stopped for a traffic accident or they've helped somebody or they've prevented something uh, untoward happened. So it is important for us to not only do we, do we hold people to account for their behaviours, but also when their behaviour is, is uh, exemplary, we actually recognise them and, and um, I, all those people, I send them a note to say, really proud of what you're doing and, and thanks, for, thanks for doing this for your family and for the organisation. The other side of that coin now, you know, and we've seen a lot of it with uh, veterans who have left and, and the suicide rates, et cetera, there. Um, I've always been very conscious of the work that we did back in the time, and that, again, is a long time ago now. But we were always very conscious of mental health and mental preparedness um, and also mental debriefing. Uh, how much is that even more evolved now since I've been out of the Army? Yes, yeah, so, so um, <clears throat> following the the early twenty first century, when we were having uh, people killed, being killed overseas, but also um, a lot of people getting wounded, we started soldier recovery centres in inside generally our combat brigades and the special forces. Um, those those organisations grew grew really organically, and so they're all slightly different. And <clears throat> General Gus Gilmore, when he was doing this job in 2015 got us to standardise those to best practice. And the best practice was in Brisbane where they had a return to work program or transition program, depending on the person's injuries. And so we aligned to, to what they were doing in Brisbane. Um, then the, the, the next development of the, of the soldier recovery, recovery um, has been human performance centres. And they started off in special ops again, but there's some green shoots across the brigades as well. And we're probably now at the stage where we need to do what General Gilmore did, which is standardise those. There's some great, there's some great um, practice there. Um, essentially, the baselining that we, we, we get of people in terms of the human performance is, are they getting the right sleep? 
is their diet appropriate? Many people have lived at home and then they join the army. They don't, they don't know how to shop or look after themselves. Are they, are they exercising both physically and mentally? So it was said to me, as you do your physical training every day, so you should read every day so that you are exercising yourself physically and mentally. Um, do they have the right connections with, with their family and, and colleagues? A lot of our living in accommodation now, our barracks accommodation is single room. <clears throat> so it is possible for people to be in their room all weekend and not connect with anybody if they choose to do that. And um, that, is not, that is not the way the army was 30 years ago, um, mainly because we, the barracks accommodation didn't allow it. You didn't have any personal time. Um, and then also making sure in their baseline that they are competent at their, at their job. And that goes back to the mission command. You feel much better about yourself if you are if you are competent and you are confident in, in what you're doing without being, without being um, too arrogant. Working with the Special Forces, the Special uh, Operations Training and Education Centre, they're now driving that baseline resilience or baseline uh, human performance and resilience into, the, into all their activities. So in terms of individuals, it's, it's working on emotional intelligence, people's manners, their, their, their listening and their thoughtfulness. In terms of teams, it's cooperation, collaboration, sharing, learning and, and, and adapting. And then organisationally, it's being collegiate, um, gaining effects but not necessarily need to own a capability, diversity, ethics and culture. So we, our idea is that human performance starts as a baseline and then we drive that through the organisation, individual, team and organisation. And many of, that, many of those um, tools to do that are through our all-core officer training continuum and all-core soldier training continuum. Uh, but we just need to reshape that so that people know when they're on this training, this training path that it's actually about their performance as a human. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The... the the thought around that is is just phenomenal, uh, and and I'd I'd say that there's not nothing that we're seeing in the corporate landscape that would match anything like what you're saying there. What um, what what sort of investment though does that take, and what sort of time and effort does that take uh, to build that sort of level of capability, and um, and what sort of advice could you give to corporates then around how how that capability could be could be extended into their sort of workforces? So it can be, um, so, so it can be expensive, um, depending on what, what you want to do. Um, but it can be as simple, if, if it's a human performance in terms of, of, of culture, you probably have the tools available in your workplace. <clears throat> you, do, you do need a champion and you might, you might actually need to take someone and say, I, I would like you to do some, some work on human performance. But it's also about partnering. So in Townsville, we worked with the Townsville Cowboys and with the Townsville Fire, which is the National Women's Basketball League. And both of those teams, both of those organisations have a very similar demographic to us. They have young, young athletes, essentially the same as we do. So we found, in Townsville particularly, we worked with the community the police, the fire and rescue service. In fact, we would invite police to our, our, our human performance activities because they have the same issues that we do. About young people under stress and young people away from home. So it's, uh, I think 
one one of the one of the ideas about human performance is a lot to learn from other people, and um, most of that stuff people are very happy to give you their time, and build partnerships together. How um how has that sort of started to reshape the issues that we've seen around um, around post traumatic stress in particular? Um, I mean. Um, what one of the issues one of the issues about um, the Australian Defence Force is that we are we don't have many people in combat at the moment. We ha we had some people deployed, but in terms of um, the combat that the the Australian Defence Force had in the uh, late late part of the first decade and early part of this decade is not not what it was. So there's definitely post traumatic stress out there, but not necessarily caused by combat. And so. Um, I mean, I have a personal concern about. Um, so there's a whole lot of people in our society who are who are given situations that are very stressful. So first responders, for example. Um, so so really, this is a community effort for us to for us to work together. And anything the Australian Defence Force has learnt can be also, I think, usefully transferred. And I know it's done in a lot of places, but also we can learn from. From police forces, fire and rescue, um, uh, ambulances, etc. Um, but but in terms of, I think we are we are um, very conscious of looking after each other, and things like good soldiering are important for that. Um, we we have a we have an idea about bystander behaviour, and bystander behaviour started off as if something bad happens, uh, you you need to act to 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 intervene. We, we won't accept that that you were there you watched it happen but you didn't you didn't act and bystander behavior but now we're spreading that idea in fact that bystander behavior also includes um, helping each other and, and 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 what we're saying is we're all in that there is no with with, with um, particularly the way um, what we talk about gray zone gray zone operations which means, we don't really know when conflict is going to occur or how it's going to occur. In fact, we might not even know that conflict has occurred, depending what depending what happened. And, and I'd say, for example, in the cyber cyber incident, you may not know that that uh, something's happened to an organisation. So what we say to our people there, you you you're no you cannot be a bystander. That whether you're on exercises, whether you're on activity, whether you're on training, whether you're on operation, it's all the same. You need to be professional you need to be looking after each other and you need to be treating this as as the run on the run on first 18 or the first 15 uh, because you're in you're in and um, what the chief of army talks about we're ready now and we're future ready um, and and just to get the mindset that this is this is we're playing this for real for every activity we're doing what is the what's the future now going to hold for you oh look um grant i'm, I'm gonna uh, Treat every day as, uh, as 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 it comes, and um, try and make my best contribution. It is um, the I mean the most I think the most you know, there's many many important things about the military, but one of the one of the most important things about military is that you leave it in a better place than when you came. Yeah. I know there's a lot of talent coming through, and I've I've had a very fortunate run, but I will um, I'll serve as long as as I'm able to, and then. I'll go and do something else, and um, I'll always have fond memories of um, of being able to serve serve Australia. 
we talk about legacies for leaders. Is there anything that you've particularly thought about your own legacy that you've started to create or or is that more of a luxury for post to think back on? I mean, I, my, my view is I've never achieved anything without a team. So so I would never, I, 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 I couldn't point to something and say that was, that was me, I've, I've made a change. Um, I also know that the way our organisation moves because every two years things change, that there is a tendency to throw out the old, bring in the new, which is also fine. Um, and I'm very, I'm very comfortable, very comfortable with that. Um, and it is is part of the growth of the organisation. And um, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this 100 day assessment is that we want to capture that corporate knowledge so that it's there for the it's there for the future. And so it's um, it's quite comprehensive. But what it means is in the future when people say we'd like to do we'd like to do a certain thing. Um, they could, if they wanted to look back at this, they could say, well, actually, it was considered. And at that time, it wasn't the time to do that, but perhaps the time is now. What do you see as being the, the future for our army over the next five to 10 years? Given the change that's happened, the dramatic change that's happened over the last 20 years, what do you see as being the, the main sort of future focus for our army going forward? Oh, it's... Um there's 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 huge huge opportunities for for anyone who's who's joining the army now we are so so we will have in the next decade uh long range long range fires uh integrated air and missile defense uh information capabilities there'll be new armored vehicles um digital digital platforms all, all of those things are going to require a highly technical and skilled workforce. We've got those people. They are, they are in Australia and, and they, are, they are able to do that. We are working to transform the way we train. So training is pretty much the way you and I did it, classroom, PowerPoint, and uh, then a practical activity. We're trying to become more digital, um, augmented reality, virtual reality, learning at the point of need rather than give, give a, a lot of information up front, but uh, that, that may not be needed. Um, we're looking at trades such as the communications trade, get them away from hardware and into software. So web-based applications, networks, cyber, um, that type of thing, because there is a, a, a hunger for that in the workforce and there's a real need for that in the, in the modern battle space. Yeah, I think you're losing a lot at the moment to to corporate uh, corporate landscape here as well, for, particularly in the cyber space. Uh, I mean, how do you protect army from that as well? The regular and the reserve workforce, we've now got um, service categories. So service category seven is regular force. Six is what we would have called leave um, part time. Work you're still full time, but you you might say I'd like to have school holidays off, and they can arrange that. Your super can be adjusted. Your 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 leave can be adjusted to do that. Um, service category five is the reservist as we knew it, um, and what we're looking at is is um, flexible flexible employment of of the of reservists and making sure that they are able to. Uh, do what they need to do, and you might be a service category seven, a regular, regular, a full-time serving person, and then you might say, "I would like to go and do something else." 
and we can come to an arrangement where you might become service category six, where you're off half a year at, at a, an employer and half a year with, with the military, or you might go to service category five and still use your, still use your skills. So our, our point is that treat people with respect, give people opportunities and, and keep the connection with people. And we're, we're, look, we're looking to having this blended workforce where, where society can benefit from the skills of these great people, but also um, we, we can benefit. One of the questions I do ask everyone that's been involved in the podcast is, yeah, if you had a chance to sit down with someone who's led through a crisis or been one of the great leaders of our time, who would that be? So, so the person I'd like to sit down with would be George C. Marshall, General George C. Marshall, who was the chief of um, the the the, the, the uh, chief of staff for U.S. Army in um, Second World War, and well, because uh, he was kept he was kept in Washington for the entire the entire time. So he 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 wasn't given an opportunity to command in the field. So Eisenhower and Bradley and Patton and all those people, because of his skills in building an army. Uh, so uh, they came early in um, in in 19, uh, 1941, before they were attacked by the Japanese. They came up with the concept of the ninety division gamble. So essentially, they said we will only build ninety U.S. divisions, uh, army and six marine divisions, and we will put the rest of our people into industry because we'll become the arsenal of democracy, as they were called. <clears throat> and um, to, to, by comparison, the Germans had 300 divisions. Um, the, Rus the Russians had um, about 450 divisions. So, um, so the idea was that the US would build a small, a small organisation, well-equipped, professional, but they would, um, they would have this gamble that that would be enough to win the Second World War. So I'd like to just sit down with him and a fellow called Major Wiedemeyer, who was his key architect of that, and just go through the logic of how are you assessing that risk so early? Yeah. That, that you're, able to, you're able to come up with a gamble. Um, that's really before they were even in the war. They, they said, okay, this is what we think. Before that even do. started. Man, yeah, <laughs> and so what? And uh, what was documented as their rationale at the time? Well, it, uh, they um, so that ninety divisions is still eight million people in in, in uniform. The ra the rationale was they needed they needed to um, build. Yeah. So so they sent one hundred and fifty divisions worth of equipment to the Russians. Uh, and and it, it's not well documented in the West, but the Russians, without the Russians in the East, um, Normandy just wouldn't have happened. That, that would have been too, too, would have been too difficult to to. Um, but the Russians did a lot of attrition. So, um, so essentially, um, the US and the US had an eye on after the war. So yeah. if you can if you can build your industry. In the war, the Lend-Lease program with with the UK um, push over the people that you need to push over. But if you can make your very strong, it means after the war you're going to be really well positioned. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty phenomenal thinking. Do you think we have that capability, leadership, or insight at the moment to think that far ahead now? 
I, I think they're I think they're brilliant leaders across um, public and and private life, and um, we we I think some people do some people do cut through with 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 some great with some great ideas, um, particularly business leaders in in this country. Um, Kerry Stokes comes to mind, who who, who runs an organisation that not only is is a great business, employing many great Australians, but he does things like um, secures the Victoria Crosses for Australia. Mm-hmm. I think um, that contribution to our to our nation is is um, cannot be underestimated. What what a person like Kerry Stokes and other great leaders like him are doing for our nation, and um, I know that um, I've worked. Um, particularly in Queensland, worked worked with some phenomenal leaders at local government, at state government level within the Queensland um, public public service. And there are good Australians. It's one of the reasons that this is such a great place to live and and such such a privilege to be an Australian. I think that's a, I think that's a really great point to finish on. I, I really want to thank you. It's the 20th anniversary today. I think you're going to have a fantastic time catching up for the reunion tomorrow up in Townsville. So please give all my best and all of our best to everyone who's uh, serving up there. Thank you particularly for your ongoing service. Um, I think you can probably put yourself in the ranks of those people that you spoke fondly about there. And specifically for me, um, it was a real privilege to have served uh, under you and alongside you over the journey. So thank you very much, Chris Field, Major General Chris Field, for joining us on Crisis Talks today. Thanks, Grant. Pleasure to talk to you, mate.